The killing began on April 7th. The genocide was triggered when Rwandan President Habya Ramana was assassinated as he was returning home from peace talks in Tanzania. Rwandan's population was 85% Hutu, 14% Tutsi. And tensions between these two people groups had been escalating for decades. But the killing of the president lit the fuse on the powder keg in Rwanda, triggering what can only be described as one of the bloodiest slaughters in history. Armed mostly with machetes, the Hutu people attacked with genocidal intent. And in the span of about 100 days, over a million Tutsi people were butchered. About a year ago in December, I was horrified, physically sickened, as I read the account of a woman named Immaculate Ilibagiza, who survived the Rwandan genocide by hiding in a pastor's house in a tiny closet-sized bathroom. For 91 days, get this, for 91 days, she and seven other adult women stood in that little bathroom, packed in like sardines, barely enough room to move, taking turns as to who got to sit down and surviving on scraps of leftovers. And even worse, even worse, I was horrified to learn that, that, that this had happened in my lifetime. Not back in the dark ages somewhere, which is what I would have expected, but in my adult years, in 1994, I felt naive and uninformed. I felt disappointed that 26 years ago, I didn't realize this was going on. But more than anything, more than anything, I was saddened that human beings could still treat other human beings with such barbaric evil and vicious inhumanity. I remember when I finished the book, I called a friend in utter disbelief, and I said to them, how could this have happened in our lifetime, in our generation? How could this have happened in the 1990s? Utter disbelief. Today, we're starting a new sermon series, a 10-week journey through the Old Testament book, of Esther, and I was reminded of Immaculate's miraculous survival of the Rwandan genocide because the storyline that's on the surface of the book of Esther centers around the courageous actions of a young girl who's caught in the crosshairs of an evil man's scheme to exterminate the Jewish people. He wants them wiped off the face of the earth. That's the storyline on the text of Esther. And I don't want to say a whole lot more than that because these details don't come until a little bit later in the story. And I don't want to get ahead of ourselves and I don't want to give anyway any spoilers. But as we get started, let me make just kind of two introductory remarks about the larger uh, book. Kind of, and then we'll look briefly at the kind of the historical events that surround the book of Esther and kind of give you a picture of what is happening at that time. My first comment by way of introduction is this. While there is a first 
or you know, kind of a, um, a storyline on the surface. There is also a second, more subtle storyline just below the surface of the book of Esther. And it centers on the unseen but unmistakable providence of God behind historical events and human affairs. Let me say that again. There is a second storyline underneath the surface, and it centers on the unseen and unmistakable providence of God behind historical events and human affairs. And as we make our way through this book together over the next 10 weeks, I will do my best to try to help you see the development of both of those storylines, the one on the surface and the one underneath the surface. And just as God is at work behind the scenes in the book of Esther, God is also at work behind the scenes in our lives every day. You know, too often we expect God to show up in burning bushes and parted waters and fire coming down from heaven. You know, miraculous ways, showstoppers. Chuck Swindoll says, we, we tend to think that if God is involved, we will see him act within the hour. Certainly by sundown, absolutely by the end of the week. And sometimes he does, friends. Sometimes he does. But more often, more often, God's work is behind the scenes. And it's cleverly disguised as slow-moving, ordinary, everyday occurrences. Interestingly, this is the only book in the entire Bible in which the name of God never appears. Never appears, not a single time. But I agree with Matthew Henry, who said, while we see the name of God nowhere in this book, we see the hand of God everywhere in this book. And here's my hope as we get started. If we can learn to see God's work behind the scenes in Esther's life, maybe we will also begin to learn to discern the activity of God behind the scenes in our lives as well. My second introductory remark is simply an encouragement to all of you, especially to those who have read the story before. And it is simply this. As we work our way through the book of Esther, try to, en- try to read and engage the story as if you're hearing it for the first time. Try to read and engage the story as if you're hearing it for the first time. Because sometimes our familiarity with a Bible story or a certain passage causes us to gloss over the text. And important details wind up either missing or they get a little distorted or twisted in our minds. But if we can discipline ourselves to read it and hear it as if we don't know the ending and we don't even know what's coming next... If we can do that, that discipline will help us to deepen our engagement with the text and increase our learning from it. Now, the book of Esther is wrapped around, the story that's told in the book of Esther is wrapped around five main characters. And chapter one is going to introduce us to two of them. So look at verses one and two with me. It reads this way. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. 
At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. So the book begins by introducing us to a king. His Greek name is Xerxes. His Hebrew name is Ahasuerus, and some of your Bibles will use that name. That's just a whole lot harder to pronounce. And his Persian name, you ready for this one? His Persian name is Kashayarshan. I'm definitely not going with Persian's name. So we're going to stick with Xerxes because I can pronounce that one. So let me take just a moment and review for you a little bit of Israelite history. I want to try to give you the larger context uh, so that you see where the reign of Xerxes and the book of Esther fits into the larger picture. The nation of Israel was originally comprised of 12 tribes. And during the reign of Rehoboam, who was the son of Solomon, that nation split into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. Now, both kingdoms were ruled mostly by wicked kings who led the people away from the Lord, led them into sin and idolatry, led them into ignoring the law of Moses and despising the prophets. And God eventually brought judgment on Israel. He sent his people into exile. That northern kingdom of Israel was exiled into Assyria. The southern kingdom of Judah was exiled into Babylon. And remember, the book of Daniel reflects that Babylonian exile. Now, eventually, the Persian Empire conquered all of these lands, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and absorbed them all into their empire. And, the, and this Persian kingdom reached its zenith at the time of Esther. Xerxes became the king of the Persian Empire in 486 BC, when his father Darius was killed. His father had invaded Greece a couple of years earlier, but he had been soundly defeated and thoroughly humiliated. And so he had fully intended to return to Greece and exact his revenge upon that people. But he died in 486 and never did go back to Greece. But his son Xerxes took his seat on the throne and ruled for 22 years. And Xerxes felt compelled to avenge his father. And the historian Herodotus claims that Xerxes intended to invade all of Europe and reduce the whole earth to one empire. Guess whose that would be? His, Xerxes. He wanted the whole world to be under his control. So when the book of Esther opens, Xerxes' kingdom is comprised of 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. You see that in verse 1. If you were to look at today's map, that area would include the area from southern Pakistan all the way to northern Sudan, which at the time was the majority of the known world. And it was the greatest empire ever known at that point in history. One commentary I read said the Persian Empire covered a landmass that was roughly equivalent to the United States. 
Now verse 2 tells us that Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Susa was one of four capitals in Persia, and it was used as the winter capital. Now, look at verses 3 through 5. Verses 3 through 5. It says, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, the nobles of the provinces, all of them were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. And when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So as the book opens, we're in the third year of Xerxes' reign, which would be approximately 483 BC. And he is planning and strategizing and amassing an army to launch another assault against Greece. Again, the Greek historian Herodotus suggests that these banquets that Xerxes hosted may have been used more as strategy sessions. He says the king wouldn't have assembled all of his military and provincial leaders at one time as those strategy and planning sessions would have pulled them away from their duties for far too long and left the empire vulnerable. It's more likely that over that period of six months that the king brought his officials to Susa on a rotating schedule in order to confer and strategize and get all of his leaders on board and on the same page. And then, and then, having received everyone's agreement and buy-in, then the king would bring them all together for a seven-day feast to finalize plans and celebrate a victory that was so close he could almost smell it. And when Xerxes threw a banquet, he went all out. His first one, 180 days, displaying the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. You see that in verse 4. 180 days, six months. And then right on the heels of the first, he throws a second which I suppose is what all of you would do as well, right? I mean, after doing a 180-day party and hosting and having all kinds of guests, it just makes sense that you would want to throw another party, right? Because I suppose every good party deserves an after party, right? Can you imagine the reactions of the kitchen staff and the cleaning crews? They just got done with 180 days, and now they've got to do another seven. Thankfully, the second banquet would only last seven days, which led one author to ask, when was the last time you referred to a week-long party as the shorter one? <laughs> oh, so look, and look how this, this second party is described. Look at verses six through eight says, the garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material in silver rings on marble pillars. 
There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, and each one was different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. The author, in writing this, wants us to see the arrogant excess and over-the-top opulence that characterized the king. Everyone in the citadel of Susa was invited, but make no mistake about it, the, uh, the guest of honor was none other than King Xerxes. And everything about the party pointed to his greatness. Curtains, cords, cups, and couches are all described in detail, meant to convey the luxury and extravagance of his party. Marble pillars, mosaic pavement, manicured gardens, and the alcohol flowed freely. An open bar inviting everybody to drink whatever they wanted and as much as they wanted. When verse 8 says that each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, this actually ran contrary to Persia's custom. Normally, tradition required guests of the king to drink whatever the king was drinking and to drink whenever the king was drinking. But at this auspicious affair, custom was set aside, and so each guest could drink whatever they wished. The opulence, the lavishness, the extravagance was meant to stun and overwhelm his guests. It was meant to glorify the king above all else. And here's why. Because as his military and provincial, provincial leaders finalized their plans to attack Greece, Xerxes needed to convey to them a sense of power and confidence and success and invincibility so that his, that his military would have their courage bolstered and his people would support him. A third banquet is hosted in verse 9. Look there with me. It says, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So while Xerxes' banquet was being held in the enclosed gardens of the palace, that's back in verse 5, Queen Vashti is hosting her own banquet in another area of the palace. And most likely, she's entertaining the wives and sisters and mothers of the most important men in Susa. Three banquets. Over-the-top extravagance. 187 days of non-stop partying. Chuck Swindoll says for six months, the palace staff worked tirelessly to put the majesty and glory of the king on full display for all to see. Parades and exhibits showed off everything from the fortune he had amassed to the countless peoples he had conquered and turned into slaves. These banquets had all the ingredients of pagan celebration, loud music, wild dancing, too much eating, excessive drinking, and from start to finish, 
from start to finish, the praises of the king were on lavish display. These opening verses to the book of Esther are meant to give us a glimpse into the soul of the man, into the soul of the king. He was a man consumed with being honored and displaying his authority and wielding his power. The history books tell us that he was capricious and tyrannical and brutal. One commentary noted that archaeologists who have excavated Susa have unearthed inscriptions in which this king referred to himself as the great king or the king of kings, and even the king over this great earth. What we know about Xerxes is confidence was not this man's problem. Now, before we move into the second half of this chapter, let's pause in the middle of all of this pomp and circumstance, because there's a couple of ideas, important ideas, for us to consider applying to our lives The first uh, application idea is this. A raucous display of the king's perceived power does not diminish the quiet reality of God's actual power. A raucous display of perceived power does not diminish the quiet reality of God's actual power. Xerxes and his staff are going over and above to put on display the power and grandeur that he perceives to be in his grasp. And all of the while, the guests at his party are soaking it up, and the king himself is eating it up. But, but, our thinking on this must remain clear. And our clear thinking would remind us of this. God has no rival. And he has no equal. He has never been, he is not now, and he will never be intimidated, threatened, or thwarted. God's power is absolute and he is moving all of history towards the accomplishment of his purposes. And he cannot be stopped. Here is the truth that you and I should rest in every day. We should rest in this every day. Here it is. National leaders, no matter how powerful or well-positioned, can never override God's plan. National leaders, no matter how powerful or well-positioned, can never override God's plans. That was true in Persia, 5th century BC, and it is equally true for us in 21st century America. No matter how much power they are perceived to have, National leaders will never be a threat or a rival to God's actual power. The second application I want to share with you before we move on is this. Be cautious that you are not mesmerized by displays of wealth and power. Marvel only at the greatness of God. Be cautious that you are not mesmerized by displays of wealth and power. Marvel only at the greatness of God. Friends, we are not defined by what we own. We're not. The king paraded his wealth and splendor. He displayed his curtains, cords, cups, and couches. 
and people swooned, overwhelmed by the extravagance. But that should not be our response. We must guard our hearts and our minds so that they are not mesmerized by wealth and power. Because at the end of the day, material possessions are temporary and they're vulnerable to to being lost or stolen or damaged. They don't last forever and you can't take them with you. Instead, instead, let your heart be captivated by that which is truly great. Let your heart be captivated by that which is truly great. Marvel at the greatness of God because he will never go away. And he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Can I get an amen? That's right. Okay. Now, having said that, let's turn our attention now to the second part of chapter one. And this uh, is kind of the banishment uh, that happens in verses 10 to 22. I'm going to start by reading verses 10 through 12. It says, On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigtha, Zethar, and Carcass. Woo! <laughs> He, uh, these were the seven eunuchs who served him, and he commanded them to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come, and then the king became furious and burned with anger. So on the final day of this feast, after seven days of excessive drinking and celebrating, King Xerxes was high in spirits, or was in high spirits from the wine. I think that's a nice way of saying he was drunk. Three sheets to the wind. And it was in the middle of this inebriated condition that he decided to show off his ultimate trophy, Queen Vashti, for she was lovely to look at. So he ordered the seven eunuchs who served him to bring the queen wearing her royal crown so that the people and nobles could behold her beauty. Now, Bible scholars and commentaries have uh, speculated and debated on the meaning of the king's command. What exactly was he ordering her to do and why did she refuse? And the suggested possibilities range anywhere from something pretty innocuous all the way to something rather scandalous. The fact is, we don't know. But my sense is, it was probably more scandalous. Whatever it meant, Vashti refused. She had no intention of parading herself around in front of a drunken crowd to be heckled at and pawed at simply to satisfy the ego of her liquored up husband. In a way, her refusal was kind of a triple offense in that culture. She was a woman defying a man. She was a wife refusing her husband. She was a queen denying her king. And because of that, there will be consequences. But in the midst, in the midst of this unsavory scene, she had the courage to say no to what may have been an inappropriate or even indecent request. And I say, good for her. 
good for her. But as you can imagine, the king is livid. How dare she refuse him? And in front of his guests, the king was furious, the text says, and he burned with anger. And everybody's watching to see what he's going to do. Don't you think it's just a little bit ironic that he has spent all of this time and energy and money for 187 days to display his power and superiority. And now, in a moment, his queen has refused his request and he has no idea what to do. He is left dumbfounded before his guests. So verse 13 says, he turns to his wise men. Look at this verse with me. It says, since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Their names were Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Mamukan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. King says, according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mamukan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. Right? So this very day, the Persian and Median women of nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. This is, this is such a classic case of overreaction. The queen has not only wronged the king, but all of the people in the provinces of the Persian Empire. Seriously? She's wronged the entire kingdom? In a span of a few seconds, Memu Khan has turned a private marital disagreement into a public national crisis. And honestly, somebody standing near him should have put their hand on that man's shoulder and whispered, just stop. Just stop. But nobody did. Nobody did. And if his initial comments weren't foolish enough, he continued. He said, if word gets out about the queen's conduct, why? Women all throughout Persia will begin to despise their husband and they'll justify their behavior, saying, well, if the queen can do it, so can I. But you have to put a swift and certain end to this or there will be no end to the disrespect we're going to have to put up with. <laughs> now, at this point, you hope it can't get any worse. You hope. And then it does. It does. Verse 19. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then 
when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all of his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Really? (laughs) In a way, Memukan is saying, it is my recommendation that we respond immediately by issuing a decree and making it a law that Vashti be banished forever from the king's presence and that she be replaced by someone better than she. Someone better than she. Insert the word compliant. Insert the word doormat. Insert the word obedient. It doesn't take much imagination to see what Maimukan expects from women. Immediate, unquestioning obedience. And in his mind, a decree issuing severe punishment will discipline the queen and discourage other women in the kingdom from disobeying their husbands. Honestly, a suggestion like that makes me wonder what in the world was going on in this guy's marriage that would make him suggest such a thing. Do they honestly believe that this would be effective? Submission by fiat? mandating that every wife obey unhesitatingly and unquestioningly their husband's every command? Really? Was the social order of Persia so unstable that it was seriously threatened by one one woman's refusal to parade herself in front of a bunch of drunk men? And did they really need to pass a law about it? Did they really think that other husbands would then follow that law and banish their wives if they didn't immediately obey? One has to wonder if this recommendation was meant to reveal the character and quality of the king's counselors or or was it just meant to be a reminder to us that drunkenness leads to foolishness. Drunkenness leads to foolishness. Now, maybe it was the burning rage or the bruised ego or his drunken stupor or the pressure of needing to appear strong in front of his guests or maybe some combination of all of that. I don't, I just, I'm not sure exactly. But it is alarming to me that the leader of the most powerful nation in the world at that time not only entertained this suggestion, but he approved it. He approved it. Look at verse 21 says, the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Maimukan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his household. This makes me very thankful for what another king wisely wrote when he said, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. That, friends, is wisdom. And as we come to the end of this first chapter and the end of this message, Let me close with two more applications and then I'd like to say a word, a final word about the main point of this chapter. What is the main point of this chapter? 
First application is this. Avoid drunkenness. Avoid drunkenness. The New Testament says in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And we see this truth played out right in front of us on the pages of Esther. Drunkenness leading to debauchery and to foolishness. In fact, I would say it this way. Drunkenness is tied to foolishness and anger as assuredly as good health is tied to diet and exercise. And so we are commanded to avoid drunkenness. Now, just to be clear, this verse is not saying that you cannot drink alcohol at all. It's not saying that. Although I would say if you have personal tendencies or family history that leans towards alcoholism, I would certainly encourage you to avoid alcohol altogether. But this verse, uh, Ephesians 5.18, this verse is addressing the very real question of what do you allow to control you? What controls you? The verse says, we are to be filled with the Spirit of God. We are to be controlled by the Spirit of God. If we are drunk, we are being controlled by alcohol. And friends, we would be wise to never, never put ourselves in a position where something other than the Spirit of God controls us. That would just be wise. My second observation is this. Our spouse is not our slave to be controlled and ordered around. Our spouse is not our slave to be controlled and ordered around. Look again at Ephesians chapter 5. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but rather holy and blameless. And in this same way, that's key phrase, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. Relating Relating to our spouse using demands and manipulation and threats, seeking to control them or to shame them into obeying our demands is in every way, in every way that is unloving, unchristlike, and unacceptable. In every way. But it happens far too often. And unfortunately, It happens even in Christian marriages. But friends, it should never be. It should never be. The biblical idea of submission is not subjugation. There is a difference. The the biblical idea of submission always occurs in the context of mutual love and honor and respect towards each other. Husbands, we are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, you are called to respect your husbands. And in doing so, each of us learns to honor Christ. So our spouse is not our slave. We are to love, honor, and respect our spouse as Christ loved the church. And finally, just a final word about what's the main point of Esther chapter 1. What is the main point? 
This opening chapter of Esther sets the context for the larger book. And it helps us to understand some of the environment and the personalities that uh, Esther is going to have to contend with in the years ahead. Now, there are also military campaigns happening behind the scenes, but the Holy Spirit chose not to include those details when he inspired the writing of the book. The Holy Spirit's main focus is to help us understand how Esther arrived in a position of influence so that she might have proximity and access to the king when the future plans for genocide became known. That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to know. How did Esther get into a position of influence? So the main point of this first chapter is simply this. In his providence, God used Xerxes' demands and Vashti's defiance as Esther's doorway. In God's providence, he used Xerxes' demands and Vashti's defiance as Esther's doorway. Let me explain. Because God is omniscient, he knows everything. He knows everything, which means he knows about the attack that will be coming against his people, the Jews, just a few years down the road. And because of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he will faithfully intervene to spare them from extermination. And this intervention begins with opening a door to place Esther in the most advantageous position possible, which is the position of the queen of Persia. He needs to get her into that, ad, that's the most advantageous, advantageous position possible. And so in his providence, God used Xerxes' demands and Vashti's defiance to open the door of opportunity for Esther to put her right where he needed her. Friends, I will remind you of this. We may not see God's name mentioned in the book of Esther, but we will see the fingerprints of his activity on every single page. Let's pray, and then the worship team will come and lead us in a final song. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for how you have recorded for us uh, different accounts of history as you have worked among your people. And some of those accounts are not always very pleasant or easy to read. But God, we are grateful for your faithfulness to your promises, that you have never turned your back on your people and you never will. And you are going to intervene in order to preserve your people so that your purposes can be carried out so that Jesus would eventually be born, that he would die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sin, be raised from the dead three days later so that we could, uh, we could have our sin forgiven if we would put our faith in him. God, you are so good. And I pray that over the next nine weeks as we walk our way through this book of Esther, God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us in it. Help us to see you at work behind the scenes. Your activity will be cleverly disguised. Give us eyes to see. We pray that your spirit would help us to see. And may we worship 